maybe the most future focused person Vinod Kosla I wrote a paper called reinventing society infrastructure with technology for example we are reinventing transportation in 25 years we can replace most of the cars in this country in cities with public transit that's better than owning a car that is not the traditional 60 year old there's a lot of people watching this are age 25 age 30 What lessons would you have from them? Most people operate based on expectations of them by others. You'll be a lot happier and a lot freer if you are internally driven. We have a lot of doomerism. What makes you an optimist in technology? First, skeptics never did them possible. Give us your sense of what, you know, the optimism scenario for AI and the skepticism scenario for AI. One of my forecasts for the future is the need to work will go away. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode of the Arthi and Sriram show. Uh, we have a very very special guest for you here today, but I have an ask for you. If you haven't done this already and you want to support us if you like what we do every single week, uh, wherever you're listening or watching to this, hit subscribe, hit like, hit follow, leave a comment, leave a review, put up a smoke signal, send a tweet, whatever it is because it means a lot to us. Um and it lets us do things like this and We often use this pity line that this guest needs so introduction, but today I genuinely mean it. Uh, this person has probably been involved in some of the most foundational transformational companies uh, that our industry has been built on. Somebody I looked up to uh, uh, growing up, um, not just because I was Indian, but just as a technologist, and then obviously has been at the forefront of investing and maybe the most future focused person uh you know i've gotten the pleasure of getting to know a little bit lane gentlemen the on the only vinod kosla vinod thank you so much for coming on the show paul it's great to be here um we have a lot to cover uh today we're going to talk about your views on the future we're going to talk about ai open source dystopia utopia there's we want to get a lot into that but one of the things i think which has fascinated me about you is your relentless focus on the future and i have a fun story and i don't you don't know the story you know about like over a decade ago when we met for the first time i visited uh the kv offices and you know your admin kind of let me sit over there and i was waiting because you were in meeting and i remember seeing on your desk there was this thick stack of papers and i couldn't i was well it was in ireland i wasn't being sneaky and it was all research papers and it made me go like wow you know like here you are you know decades in doing this and you are obsessed with learning you're obsessed with absorbing information and before we get into your predictions i'm kind of curious walk us through your information diet how are you processing trends how are you processing how the world is going to be shaping up like what are you reading what are you following because and what is your system around it because i find that so fascinating well um I read a lot. Uh I tend not to read much about finance or venture capital or any of those things. Uh I like to say I'm much more of a technology possibilist, a techno optimist with a high dose of empathy uh around it. That's sort of my general uh approach to life. Uh so 
I do read scientific papers, the new area like AI. I'm still reading papers, um, but I also read papers in biology or cellular uh, engineering or, uh, you know, very wide range of things, new things in physics. I'm just curious. I think it's a real luxury to be able to spend your time on those. So I always have huge stacks of things I have to get through. Mm-hmm. Um, in, and learning is fun. It's the best way to, uh, you know, spend your time from my point of view. Uh, and I can endorse that. I think, you know, in the TK or so, I've known him every year or so when I would meet him, he would have a new thing that he's gone super deep on. I would get a call from you uh, on something that you've been thinking about now. But I want to focus on investing. Um, and you obviously, one, with your past at Sun, at Juniper and all these companies, been involved in some of the foundational companies, uh, you know, as an operator. And then obviously as an investor, You've been behind uh, and involved in so many different iconic companies. And also interesting, you've seen multiple computational technology shifts, the PC, the internet, and now, you know, uh, probably AI. I am curious, though, right? Like, how do you synthesize what makes a trend? What are you looking for? Is it the number of founders coming and talking to you about it? Is it things actually working? Is it capital pouring in? What is sort of the checkboxes you're going through to be like, well, this is not a blip. This is here to stay. And you are going to spend maybe time and attention and money on it. So, uh, you know, there's a wide range of things. First, I do all my own research. I don't read other people's research reports mostly. Occasionally, I will. Uh, But it's fairly rare, and I never read reports like McKinsey or uh, any of the formal sources, Gartner, or pick your favorite. Uh, I do all my own research and decide where there's large changes to be had. One fun fact, after I turned 60, I'm 68 now, uh, I decided that I wanted to find a problem to work on the next 25 years. Um, since Warren Buffett was still working at age 85. Um, and I wrote a paper called Reinventing Societal Infrastructure with Technology. Mm. Uh, uh, and it came from thinking about what parts of GDP could we uh, innovate significantly with technology. And by that, I mean, uh, really multiply the resource input. So I formulated it the following way. If mm-hmm. 700 million people on the planet of the 7 billion uh, have a rich lifestyle, rich in housing, rich in healthcare, rich in entertainment, rich in transportation, rich in education, rich in medicine, uh, how do we give it to 7 billion people? Mm-hmm. Could you know, linearly thinking we'd have to produce 10 times the amount of steel, 10 times the amount of cement, 10 times the amount of cars. And what I found, 10 times the number of physicians. Um, I, You know, it was clear to me that wasn't a way to get 7 billion people to the standard of living of the top 700 million. So I wrote this whole paper about how I might do it and decided... Uh, we'd work on it. So 
For example, we're reinventing transportation. We're probably the only rental firm invested in a public transit system. Oh, by the way, we won the two, two bids we've entered so far. We've won them outright, even though we were not invited to either bid against 30-plus other competitors. Uh, we're doing space. We did Rocket Lab. We're doing Mark 5 aircraft, so London to New York in 90 minutes, uh, uh, self-driving trucks, so a lot, uh, reinventing health and disease. Uh, my son's building a primary care doctor that would scale medicine. So even in a village in India or in a house in Gaza today, a mother taking care of her kid would have 24-7 near-free primary care. Or Limbic is doing um, near-free therapy for mental health, actually doing certified therapists. A life course doing cardiology, swords doing musculoskeletal uh, we're doing new building materials. We're 3D printing buildings with photopolymers. We're doing green cement. Uh, my favorite, we are doing new sources of proteins for the planet. We're doing, uh, uh, this This sounds crazy, but electric, uh, no, fertilizer production out of thin air. Zero inputs into a plant that produces fertilizer. Uh, that's through across the board. We are doing fusion. We are doing new kinds of consumer services. Of course, uh, my wife has a nonprofit, CK12.org, that's doing open, uh, uh, has had open source curriculum for a long time, but is doing AI tutors so every kid can have an AI tutor. Um, so a broad range of things that I wrote up. Uh, when I was uh, turning 60, and I've been working on it, and hopefully 25 years from now, health permitting, I'll still be working on these things. I, I have, I have, uh, so, I, I have no <laughs> doubt that you're going to be super involved in this for a very, very long time, hopefully. But, you know, a lot of people want to watch this, and they're going to go, that is not the traditional 60-year-old. Uh, and obviously, part of it is because you know, you obviously have the resources, but I do think there is a mindset that you have where you are at the cutting edge, you want to contribute. And I'm curious, a lot of people watching this are age 25, age 30. What lessons would you have from them in terms of being active, being on the edge, focused on this? Because you are very unlike a lot of other 60 plus year olds I know. Well, um, Here's what I would say. First, it has nothing to do with resources. Mm. Uh, you can keep doing venture as long as you can find new things to invest in. It doesn't have to do with resources. It has to do with how you think about yourself. I don't much like golf. Um, I don't much like sailing. I love hiking outdoors and I love reading and learning. Mm -hmm. And those are the, uh, you know, health and uh, and learning are the key ingredients to keep investing. So, and I think that should be a key criteria for any 25-year-old or 35-year-old. Uh, I would say the following. Most people operate most of the time based on expectations of them by others. So... Uh, they will uh, look at uh, what others expect. You expect to retire at a certain age. 
you expect to have a VP title, you expect to have a better car or a bigger house, as opposed to saying, what is my motivation? So I call it internal motivation as opposed to external motivation based on expectations from society. You'll be a lot happier and a lot freer if you are internally driven, and I've always been internally driven. Uh, I think that is so profound. I mean, I just turned 40 and, uh, you know, and I've realized the people who are happy are the ones where the internal engine is motivating them as opposed to the people you see on Twitter or your peers, because that is a path to uh, unhappiness. That is so profound. Um, I think, uh, you know, I really like the idea of like, Hey, eight years ago, I wrote this paper. Now I'm basically implementing it as like an execution function based on the paper. But like the underlying theme, both just on that, but also your life and what you've done, your your son who we know and his company, all of it is uh, optimism in technology, right? Like you seem to be this eternal optimist on how tech can uh, be net beneficial for mankind. And you're applying different ways to go make it happen. Why are you such an optimist? Because we don't see a, it's not, it's, it used to be in vogue before, but somehow we've suddenly lost the plot and we have a lot of doomerism. What makes you an optimist in technology? Well, here's what I would say. First, skeptics never did the impossible. Yeah. You could always explain why something won't work. Yeah. I'm uh, much more of, as I say, a technology possibilist. Is something possible with technology? And then it's up to us to help make that happen. I have 10 surprising predictions I have for myself, but I actually invest in these pieces. See, it's up to me and other instigators of change to go find the, uh, uh, to make these things happen. Take a simple example. One of my four predictions is by well before 2050, we can replace every coal and natural gas plant in this country with fusion boilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people don't believe that. I'm almost certain that will happen. I'd take any odds with somebody on a 25-year bet on that. Mm. Um, one of my predictions, we will have Three doctors and three personal tutors for everybody on the planet. Especially kids will have personal tutors to get them through school, and everybody will have free doctors. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer we, in 25 years, we can replace most of the cars in this country in cities with public transit that's better than owning a car. Mm-hmm. I'm... Um, an optimist that we can fly at Mach 5 and and get distances to be much, much shorter. So London to New York in 90 minutes, flying on sustainable aviation fuel. I'm totally convinced we will, in 20, 25 years, have a billion bipedal robots. Mm -hmm. Uh, That would add to the scale of labor we have in all of humanity today. Uh, And 
it's a bigger market than the automobile market, but no, none of the automakers will make a forecast like that. So it depends on entrepreneurs to make it happen. I could go on. You know, there's, uh, I probably have a whole bunch of other forecasts like this. But what, uh, another favorite one, I think within the next five years, we'll have a billion programmers on this planet. Uh, of the 7 billion people will actually have written programs, but they'll write them in natural language, not in Java or Python or C. Uh, so I could, you know, talk about these. My view is you have to sort of say, this is possible. This is why I say I'm a postulist. And then say, how do we make it happen? And I can honestly tell you I'm working on every one of these things. Even fundamental things like changing agriculture, finding new sources of protein that aren't corn and soy on this planet or meat are entirely possible and we are working on them. Yeah. Uh, music and entertainment, plentiful, that's becoming more plausible to people. <clears throat> so these are great things to think about, say it's possible, then try and make it happen. Uh, um, you know, by the way, those are amazing. And I love both the diversity and the scope of the imagination and the ambition. But one of the things to think about when you mentioned was nuclear fusion was um, nuclear is an area where there is so much doomerism in sort of the zeitgeist. And this manifests itself in political pressure, regulatory pressure. We famously have not had a nuclear reactor in the country for the last... 20, 30 years. And let us say, for example, you and amazing entrepreneurs uh, are able to build the technology. How would you think about winning the public narrative, political support, regulatory support to go make it happen? Because we live in an era, for example, Germany, which just shut down their last nuclear reactor, which probably they should not have. So how do you think about winning the public government regulatory battles? So, I think you bring up a very important point. Just because something's possible doesn't mean society will adapt it. Mm -hmm. And we were investors in, and our investors in Terra Power, which was a nuclear thing, nuclear fission thing. And I'm now convinced, even though fission is a good technology, and environmentalists did us real environmental harm, by opposing nuclear, so everybody built many more coal plants than would have been built. Uh, and by the way, environmentalists did the same thing with GMO. Destroyed a great technology that could benefit humanity for for lack of any science, science knowledge and a lot of rhetoric. Um, but fission is different than fusion. So I now argue that it's harder, it'll take longer to permit one fission, nuclear fission plant than it takes to develop a whole new technology in fusion. And fusion is safe. It's not under the same regulatory regime. Uh, in fact, uh, <clears throat> it's now under the regime that looks more like a uh, particle accelerators that you might use for nuclear medicine in a hospital. Uh, so much simpler regulatory regime, uh, much faster to implement, much more of a technology risk. 
And so the general principle would be whenever you can change from social acceptance risk to technology risk, it's a good direction to go in. And I think fusion will have much faster adoption. You know, it's also important to realize that, you know, we love in tech to talk about disruption, but it's not fun to be disrupted. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you're a coal plant and a coal industry with plenty of senators in the Senate in the U.S., uh, you will oppose uh, those kinds of changes, even, uh, you know, rile up um, consumer sentiment and all that. We don't have a climate problem is what the coal industry says. But if you go to them and say, we'll replace your coal boiler with a fusion boiler, but you can keep owning the plant, operate the same turbine, the same grid, the same grid connections, the same switch gear, they suddenly become huge fans and push you along. So how to manage politics and self-interest as we introduce technology is very, very important. For example, if I talk about AI doctors, doctors say, well, my job will be gone, that's bad. I can frame it very differently, and I truly believe every physician can double their patient panel and increase the number of touch points per patient mm-hmm. while not doing more work. And that's suddenly an acceptable way to introduce this kind of technology. So whether you're talking about fusion bar- boilers or doctors, mm-hmm. you have to make sure that they are disrupted from their point of view. They have to feed their families. Okay. They need their income. They easily see if they can double their patient panel, spend less time on the things they hate, like Epic, the medical record system, uh, and have many more touch points after a visit. Every doctor would like to call their patient two days after the visit, say, how are you doing? Yep. Yeah. Entirely possible with AI, not possible the way we do it currently. So mm-hmm. social acceptance, finding all the interest groups and keeping them happy is the right way to approach these things. Now, this actually brings up an interesting conversation, maybe the conversation of the last year or so, which is AI. And I know you've spoken a lot about it um, and you've been tweeting and and you've been at the heart of this debate. I am curious to get your sense of both the optimism and maybe the skepticism around AI. Uh, I would love to start that because then I know we, I would love to also cover to you because you brought up AI as the Manhattan Project, which is also another segue, but give us your sense of both, you know, the optimism scenario for AI and the skepticism scenario for AI and where you stand on that. In fact, I'm just starting to write a piece on AI dystopian or utopia. And I think, mm-hmm. uh, so it's a little early for me to talk about it, but it is your point of view that determines whether you take the dystopian view and the press loves to amplify it, especially the woke press loves to amplify that view. Uh, But there's an utopian view. If every villager in in India or Gaza or Africa or 
even in the U.S. Every person can get free 24-7 medical care. They can get personal tutors for their kids at the level that the rich people can afford. They can get an AI lawyer, so they have access to medical care. You know, one of the funniest things I found is you can't file for a bankruptcy without a lawyer. And a lot of people who need to file for a bankruptcy can't afford a lawyer. So we actually have a nonprofit uh, um, uh, helping out a little bit with that's actually trying to do that. But an AI lawyer would allow people to have access to justice. Uh, the fight for equality would become much more accessible. So education, healthcare, uh, uh, legal advice, legal help, financial advice that AI can afford everybody. And the people who need it the most are the people who can afford, yeah. afford it the least. Yes. You know, I can get a wealth advisor, but, you know, somebody making $30,000 a year can't, and they need one. Yes. And so my point is most of these services, you know, people talk about jobs. It's not a fun job to work on an assembly line at Ford and assemble the same tire onto the same car eight hours a day for 30 years in a row. Most jobs in the world are not jobs people want. They do them, they hate them, but they have to do them. And I think one of my forecasts for the future is the need to work will go away. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I, I want to I get in that because you but, are... You yeah. are absolutely preaching to the core here when it comes to optimism. And actually, just before we had you on the show, we just had Kevin Kelly, you know, legendary creator of Wired on the show, and he was so optimistic on AI, just like I think you are. But I think the fear I have and many others have is how you like how you mention the green protest group who basically took out nuclear fission, who took out GMOs. Uh, we are now, you know, in a discussion where a lot of people think AI could destroy the world. Uh, and how do we stop a scenario where what happened to nuclear reactors or what happened to GMO doesn't happen to AI? So, yes, we can't let the GMO and nuclear scenario play out, but it comes from um, a place of empathy. I am convinced being human in humanity will mean much more in the future than it does today. Because many of the necessities of being human, like working for a living in any job you can possibly get, including slave labor, uh, is necessary. I look at that part of the world and say, we will free humanity to pursue their passion, their interests. They will work on what they want to work on. Uh, meaning will be an important issue. Uh, and, and I always get asked, what uh, will people do for jobs? And I think we will have a rich enough economy that we can afford the minimum standard of living for everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe in universal basic income, hard to imagine. But if we can increase GDP growth from 2% for the next 50 years to 4% for the next 50 years, which I think is entirely possible, then we will have per capita GDP, at least in the U.S., go from 70,000 today 
to 175,000 uh, under 2% scenario and 500,000 per capita. Uh, average per capita income in, in 50 years. Yeah. That leaves lots of room for sharing. And I think uh, when I read uh, uh, techno-economic uh, optimism or techno-optimist scenario like Mark Andreessen recently put out, I say the thing that's missing is a huge dose of empathy. Empathy and caring added to a techno-economic, uh, techno-optimistic picture solves the world's problems. We can have a dystopian future. Uh, you know, a Jeff Bezos with his humanoid robots could control the whole world. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But at least in the West, capitalism is by permission of democracy. And democracy can ensure that we include inequality among the things we optimize. Now, yeah. so take the fundamental notion of capitalism. Mm-hmm. It made a lot of sense in the world where resources were short, efficiency mattered, economic efficiency. It's done a fabulous job. Look at the difference between South Korea and North Korea. Examples right next to each other or China and Taiwan. Capitalism works for efficiency. But I would argue we have to optimize for two goals now, not just efficiency in capitalism, but also equality, income equality or reducing inequality. I'm a big believer we should have inequality. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't have equality. But Income disparity or the Gini coefficient, we should strive to reduce, and the dual goals for new economic policy should be economic efficiency and reduced disparity. Under that scenario, the techno-optimist scenario works really, really well. If policy is right to guide that, and if humanity means more. I'll give you my funnest example of, you know, uh, many years ago, five years ago, uh, I wrote about why music will be AI generated. And people just had this dystopian view of music generated by machines. It'll be so less. First, that's nonsense. But I'll give you my personal example. My daughter got married uh, in May this year. Oh, wow. Awesome. I wrote the court co- uh, message I wanted to give in my speech to her, entered into GPD four and said, generate me rap lyrics, and then entered it into one of our company's AI models, Splash AI, which, by the way, is the only AI model I know of that is free of any IP because it's not trained on other artists' music. Mm -hmm. It's built from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had it rap the song for me. So suddenly... I could be a creative rapper and surprise my daughter in the one thing she was sure I would never do, which is say. Oh my goodness. Uh, I have to say, if some, okay, <laughs> anybody listening to this who was at that wedding, I want a copy of Vinod Kosla rapping and the world has to see this. <laughs> like, this is like golden content we need to put out, Vinod. I'm just telling you, you have to put this out. But, but look, I was able to leverage this AI tool to be more human. Mm-hmm. I convey with more creativity than I could in a written textual speech. 
that's what it enables. It doesn't mean uh, Taylor Swift goes away. Mm-hmm. You know, Taylor Swift isn't music. She's a phenomenon. Yeah. She's a cultural phenomenon. And that will be there. But many more people will be able to exercise these tools of creating creativity and humanity. Um, and I do think when it applies to economic factors, we should absolutely apply a lot more empathy and, and humanity and focus on inequality than was clear from Marx's manifesto. And he should have talked about it a bit more. Uh, well, okay, we, we should get into that. Uh, by the way, Taylor Swift, watch out. Uh, Vinod is coming for you with some dope beats. Now, but Vinod, I want to, mm-hmm. on the AI piece, I want to pull one thread because I think you, a lot of our community in tech are incredibly on the same page when it comes to optimism. But I think there's been some recent, I think uh, you articulated a thesis, which even, you know, I sometimes I find like, did I get that right? I kind of disagree with it. And that is basically, I would say, and maybe I, this is my interpretation. One is your belief that AI is similar to the Manhattan Project in sort of scope and impact and severity. And second, and what that means for open source AI. So could you kind of give us your argument for that similarity and what do you think that means for open source AI? So let's be clear, AI benefiting humanity. It's free doctors, free uh, free tutors, free education, more media and more entertainment, uh, better wealth advisors and lawyers for everybody to afford more robotics, to do the work people don't want to do, better digital health, better drug design, better materials design. So and of course, lots of enterprise, most of the CAD tools that we use today will go away. We'll have AI-based tools, much better resource discovery. We've inv- we're investing in AI for discovering more lithium and cobalt and nickel, the hard uh, atom stuff that uh, tech optimists usually don't talk about. <laughs> All that will happen. And that's great for society. Here's the issue. Uh, we, I believe, are in a techno-economic war with China. Mm-hmm. And whoever wins that war, because AI is so powerful in all the areas I just talked about, and that's only a small fraction of all the areas I could talk about. They, the person who wills that, uh, wins that war in better AI, um, and that's an oversimplification, but better AI, will have more economic power, Mm. and because of that, have more political power. So when we look at the narrow function, but very critical function of a techno-economic war with China, Mm -hmm. we have to do everything to accelerate ourselves and slow them down. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a narrow use of AI, and I'm not just talking about better weapons or cyber AI uh, I'm talking about AI for social good. If I can provide all of Southeast Asia where China is trying to exercise influence with free doctors and lawyers and accountants and um, tutors and better education, better entertainment, we will win. So I think that's a war of which political philosophy. His philosophy or Western values philosophy wins. 
And I think that's the battle that will be clear in the next 20 to 25 years. And that's where I say we can't let them get ahead. Uh, I'm a, I have been a huge fan of open source. You know, at Sun, we started the open source movement. We are the first commercial company we, uh, that open sourced NFS in the early 80s. Um, we hired Bill Joy, who did open source Berkeley Unix. Mm -hmm. That was the origins of open source. Linux and other things came later. Uh, so huge yeah. fan of open source. I would say I was part of accelerating that movement. Uh, we are the first investors in GitLab when it was four people. It's in fact the only real open source platform. GitHub isn't open source. It's for open source, but it's not open source. GitLab is open source and for open source and closed source. Yeah. So I'm a huge fan of open source. Yeah. But when you have something that's in a war for the future of the world's political system and political value system, mm -hmm. is it Che with his Tiananmen style tactics and say it's okay to suppress a percentage of the population for the benefit of everybody else? And that's a reasonable position to take. Right. It's not unreasonable, uh, right? To say yeah. society will be better off and we'll take away some freedoms, freedom of speech or the, uh, the 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 Muslims or religion will take those away, but everybody will be better off. Yeah. No, um, uh, I don't want that system to win, and for that, I oppose open source in AI. Now, actually, so this is interesting because I think a lot of people try and make maybe the counter argument because I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts. Everyone would one hundred percent agree that we would want the Western values, the Western way of life. To ultimately win, um, um, give it I'd, except T and Putin. Well, yeah, well, yes, yes, yes. But you, all of us in sense that in the Silicon Valley technology community, the counter arguments I, in my mind, and I'm kind of curious to hear your reaction would be a few. The first is that restricting open source creates regulatory capture, where you basically enshrine open source to a few large companies. I think we all know who they are. The second is one of the key advantages of the West is its open ecosystem with collaboration and academia, which we can harness in a way that the closed, top-down, authoritarian world in the East cannot. So those are kind of the two places where are we shooting ourselves in the foot if we ban open source? And the third part uh, would be China's already there anyway, right? They can build this, they're, they're nearby, we're not stopping there. But I'm curious to kind of just get your reaction to that because I know you must have heard this too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have absolutely heard this. I'm a huge fan of the talk Bill Gurley gave at the All-In Summit. It was a beautiful talk I'd recommend to all your readers uh, on regulatory capture. <clears throat> I completely agree with it and I've seen it in Washington. Uh, the question is, which is the greater evil? Ch Chinese political philosophy dominating. If we weren't in a war, I completely agree with you. Uh, but we are in the middle of a techno-economic war, and it only gets worse the next 10 years. For that, I'd recommend people read a book called The Danger Zone on why China is most dangerous in the next 10 years. Right. Uh, so... Uh, if that wasn't the case, I'd agree with you. 
you know, when I first invested in OpenAI, we made that decision in late 2018, so five years ago, when the world didn't even believe in AI, and I did. <laughs> I wanted a center of excellence outside of Google and outside of Baidu. Those were really only two centers of excellence in AI, and my view was we really need an alternatives. So I do like the idea. At this point, I do think we have enough alternatives in the West, uh, and we can go further and talk about a few other things that are happening. Mm -hmm. But uh, given what I'm seeing, I, I think the danger of losing a war with China or helping them win is far greater, a bigger evil than the evil of not necessarily having open source. And it's not open source on all things. I've argued we should have a lot more open source and university research and published research on safety. I've encouraged Washington um, influencers to realize people with influence in Washington to spend a lot more time on R&D spending, uh, on safety research in AI, yeah. Um, and that should all be published. Yeah. But the basic AI capability, uh, it's important that there be more than one or two players. And I think we have that. Given that, uh, I think the bigger risk becomes uh, China. Mm -hmm. um, Look, we don't next year, we'll have a disaster on our hands because we'll have millions, if not hundreds of millions of bots in our networks trying to influence the election. And guess which nation states are going to be sending those bots out? Well, I want to... It's a crisis for next year. I, I want to touch on the safety uh, topic, because I think that's a very key one. Because I think at the heart of this is the sense of trust, which is how do we trust the systems we use? And you obviously been a pioneer open source. And if you look at the online, for example, the security industry, right? If it's not open source, there's generally less trust. And over the years, I think we would all agree that open source has made everything safer and also more trustworthy because you can look at it yourself. Do you think that we can achieve the same level of safety with saying shutting off AI to a few, maybe not three, but a few companies as opposed to anyone being able to verify, authenticate, contribute changes, and kind of bring that safety and trust element that open source does so well. Do you think we could ever get that without that? We can get that. The question is always the question of degree. Would we have more safety if everything was open sourced? Yes, we'd have more safety and a lot less investment and a lot slower progress. So we will compromise fundamental investment in AI because it's all open source. Mm -hmm. right? uh, let's be clear. If, if, if you have to spend $50 billion on AI over 10 years, which is not a large number now, mm -hmm. used to be five years ago, not a large number now. That's not going to happen from five different centers of excellence. Uh, if everything is available for everybody, including the Chinese to use. So uh, I think it's important to realize there's also this academic 
risk of sentient AI killing us all, killing all humanity. That is such utter nonsense. And they knew tweeted <laughs> to tweeted this recently. They knew that. That's colossal stupidity to amplify something. You know, press likes it because it's clickable headlines. Mm -hmm. They're doing us a real disservice with zero proof, no proof at all that this is a true thing. In the danger of sentient AI, in my view, and my view is as uninformed as anybody else's, including the best AI researchers, and I say equally uninformed, that danger is probably the same as the danger of an asteroid hitting the planet and destroying all life on the planet. Probably one in 10,000 in the next 100 years, uh, right? So are we going to take that risk and prevent the benefits of free doctors and free tutors and free medicine to everybody? That's silly. So the question is, which risk should we address? If there's a 90% risk that China will be in our election system next year, and a 70% risk we are in a techno-economic war over 20 years, I'd rather address the bigger risk first mm. while doing safety research, as I have argued. I, I love it. Instead of, you know, this sort of, it, this is all nonsense from clickable headlines. <laughs> and the press loves clicks. Look, their business model is clicks. They write to criticize everybody, but they write anything for a click. Yeah. That's the facts. And yeah, that's think... where the press is totally dysfunctional because of this uh, click phenomena. There's no responsibility left in the press. In the yeah. face of clickable clinical, headlines, yeah, but it's clear for a press article to talk about uh, some rogue AI, dystopian AI from science fiction destroying humanity. Uh, most of this, ninety-nine percent probability, it's a utopian vision yeah. under the control of democracy. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. the problem I is the formation is... of the, the democracy. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I... No, no, all good. I think uh, you're right. I think the problem seems to be what is lack of understanding, like lack of true understanding of what the risks really are, what would it look like? Like imagine a world where this was a reality, AI was like helping us or in, in, in our lives on a more consistent basis, what would that look like? So I think one, when when people publish articles, they don't think about that. There's no like real understanding on what that scenario is going to look like. Two, like you said, it's uh, negative articles and being a doomer drives clicks. And is then and so your incentive aligned to go that way and kind of like talk about how everything is messed up, everything is set to fail, everything is broken. And that's now become the norm. And it's the self-fulfilling cycle of, you know, this, this next generation. I worry that, you know, the next generation of founders will all grow up reading this, will all look at that and be like, well, okay, would, is all technology bad? Is it all going to be like really you know, terrible for us? Um, and so it, this is like a real problem now because uh, you're now getting uh, publications or media just writing these pieces without true understanding of like implications of mm. these. So I completely agree with you there. I want to switch topic. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to add two things to it. First, yeah. 
One of the things I'm observing, and frankly, we are actively investing in, is mm-hmm. the idea that nations will have their own AI systems. Yeah. You know, the Japanese kanji script is different. Should they have a different system? So many different languages with different kinds of tokenization required in India. Mm-hmm. Should they have a national system? Uh, I do think, think they should, and they will. And mm-hmm. almost all nations, large nations of any size, are worrying about that issue. And I think that's a good thing. So we will see an axis of development that diversifies uh, development uh, uh, in many into many more areas because nations like India and Japan and Germany can do that kind of thing. Yeah. I can afford that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, this content are founders or people who want to be founders. They're working on an idea. So I guess question for you: You've invested in many, many companies. You're a founder yourself many times over. I think, uh, what do you look for as like founder attributes, traits? What is a, who's a good founder to you? A great founder has a clear view of what they're trying to do, have real strong belief in themselves, right? Yeah. But are open to input. They don't mind debate and argument. I love to argue and debate. Yeah. And founders who aren't comfortable aren't a good match for me. But after that, they have to synthesize all that input, including input from others, mm-hmm. into their own strategy and make their own decisions. So in all my years on boards, I almost never vote against founders, right? And so I no longer even go on boards because boards like to vote on things. I think that's a bad idea in private companies. And so you should argue and debate, spend the time, discussing things, even heated debates. I'm a strong debater. But in the end, if a founder starts listening to me a lot, I think that's a bad founder. I actually stop trusting them because they're, you know, taking your strategy and implementing it instead of saying, I'm synthesizing a new strategy for myself. So the rate of learning is really important in a founder, their belief in themselves and their openness to other ideas. Great idea, you know, if I were to say who's a great founder like this, take Patrick Collison, John Carlson, mm-hmm. always happy to take input. In fact, seeking out lots of alternative input, but they do synthesize their own opinions. They don't sway him because somebody has a big title or is a famous venture capitalist or is rear admiral this or the CEO of that. Mm-hmm. Um, they synthesize their own path. That's the best kind of founder, but they learn rapidly. Yep. yep. Those are the only real things. Matt, Vinod, I know we're out of time, but I just want to say this was such a delight. But I also want to say, you know, this is so apparent. And as a, somebody's gotten to know you a little bit over the years, but somebody watching this, your relentless optimism, your focus on the future, and you just just wanting to be so vocal about your beliefs, it's inspiring. And, you know, I hope you never stop. And this was such a delight. You should come back and do this again. But thank you so much for doing this with us. This was great. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.